The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, We're continuing today in our series called A Great Light. Uh, We're just looking at how incredible it is that Jesus uh, came as as a light to a world uh, shrouded in darkness and all that that means and and how the time around Christmas kind of brings us into a a laser focus on these ideas. And so uh, if you're new to navigating your Bible, the easiest way to find Isaiah, I think, is just open the middle of your Bible. You'll find the book of Psalms. It's a big one. And then uh, you want to flip forward through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, you'll find Isaiah. Uh, if you hit Jeremiah, Lamentations, or Ezekiel, you've, you've gone too far. Okay? If you don't have a Bible uh, and you'd like one, we'd really like to give you one. So see us in the Connect Center afterwards. If you don't have a way to follow along with us right now, uh, we will have the verses on the screen. <clears throat> Pray God's blessing on the fire department, whatever they're going to handle. Amen? <laughs> Uh, Okay, so uh, week one of this Advent series, we looked at the song of Simeon, and uh, there's a line in in that song. So Simeon was in the temple. The Bible says that the Spirit led him into the temple, and and there he encountered the infant Jesus. And uh, he he then was so overcome that he he sang a song in one of the lines of that. He talked about uh, God now letting him basically be able to rest in peace because he has seen a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And in that, he's talking about Christ. And then the second week, we went to 2 Corinthians 4, and we really dove into this idea that Paul, you know, he, he presents it to us, and then, and then we really had a chance to unpack it kind of all the way down, this idea of the, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And there's so much to that. As I said, when we worked through those verses last week, there was a whole lot of gold we, we left in the mind there. Uh, but this week, um, and, and so p- part of what that meant last week is how, how is the gospel a practical light to us in our lives? How, how, how does it provide for us a, a compass of, of navigation? And so uh, this week... Um, we're heading into the book of Isaiah, uh, and we've mentioned these verses in Isaiah uh, throughout this series, <clears throat> as well as we've mentioned Matthew's quotation of these verses in Isaiah in chapter 4 of his account. So, you know, we've been all around these throughout this entire series, but today we're going to work through them with methodical care and to, to reveal for some and then to renew for others the great wonder of the real message of Christmas. And as we get into these verses in Isaiah, I just want you to keep in mind, I think it's, this is part of the wonder, uh, it is for me, that these verses, uh, the book of Isaiah was written roughly 700 years before the time of Jesus, before his birth in Bethlehem. And, you know, sometimes when we're talking about Bible history and history in general, you know, we throw out these numbers like 700 years, and I think sometimes it just doesn't maybe quite stick like it should. You know, as a, as a reference point, the United States of America has existed for roughly 246 years, okay? So think all the way back, think, think of, try to think of that span of time, how long the United States has existed, 
246, 700 years before the events of Jesus' birth and life, Isaiah was talking about what was going to happen. That's a long time. To me, it speaks to uh, the incredible wisdom of God and the reality that uh, he exists outside of time, which is pretty cool. That comforts me in a great many ways. We'll talk about some of it today. So we're in Isaiah. Hopefully you found uh, chapter 9, and we're looking at verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire." For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Praise God for his word. Amen. All right, let's go back to verse 1 here of Isaiah 9 and uh, work through this. So I think maybe for some of you that you know this, but just to kind of understand what's going on here. And again, you know, we've said this many times, oftentimes with biblical prophecy, there's there's kind of a near meaning and a far meaning. So some of what Isaiah is addressing here are things that are kind of happening as uh, it's being said in that time frame, but also, also there's clearly this element in which it's looking forward. But part of what, what it's talking about here where it says, no more gloom, no more anguish, that in earlier times, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali were treated with contempt. What, part of what that looks like and what that means so this is, this is in the northern region of the territory of the, of the people of God. And when the Assyrians invaded, they came from the north. And, and, and so these regions really kind of took the brunt of the, the devastation that came from uh, those invasions. Those invasions being, like many others in the history of God's people, a result of their rebellion against God. And so God in his great love... Uh, sent a reminder <laughs> that they need him and uh, that Baal and Asherah and all the rest of these false gods are only going to lead them to uh, far greater and more permanent pain than even the temporary pain that these uh, invading armies were bringing. Okay, so that's, that's kind of just, if you don't know about Zebulun and Naphtali and why they, they were treated with contempt, what that all means, it has a lot to do with the Assyrian invasion and if you if you just want to if you want to see some of that for yourself, just go a couple of chapters back in the book of Isaiah, and you can see some more of that context. Okay, so that brings us to verse two, which says, "The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them." And so, 
as, as I said, we've referenced the, the uh, text in Matthew 4 where Matthew <clears throat> had this moment and he noticed that this prophecy was being fulfilled. And so Matthew, when, when he's, he saw the events around Jesus leaving Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry and settling in Capernaum right near the Sea of Galilee and, and then focusing his ministry in that area, he, he said this that happened. Jesus left Nazareth and ended up in Capernaum right there in Galilee, right in this land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And, 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 and him doing that, that was the fulfillment of this prophecy that those sitting in darkness are seeing a great light. And Jesus kind of revealed that he was there and there uh, to, to bring light and life and hope and a message of the kingdom. Uh, I, I think it's also, though, worth mentioning that if you just look at a map of ancient Israel, Capernaum and Nazareth are actually not that far away, and they are both in the region of Galilee. So in one sense, though maybe the light was not fully revealed, you know, Jesus being raised in Nazareth, uh, of all the places his family could have settled and been, uh, you know, Jesus spent all, almost all of his life in, in the region of Galilee. And so I think that's, uh, again, Isaiah wrote 700 years before that that region specifically, that little spot, it's not that big geographically, was going to see a great light, though they sat in darkness. And uh, Christ absolutely is that light. So let's look at verse 3. All right, so you will see a great light. Light will shine on this area that's been in darkness. So what is that going to look like? What does that mean? Well, he says, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. So as a result of this light, their gladness will increase. They, they will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So here's a couple of things. So gladness is going to increase. What else? They will be glad what? In your presence. There's a lot to be said about that. There are a lot of sources of what we may call <clears throat> gladness or happiness in this life. I think if you've been around Bible teaching for any amount of time, you've probably heard a distinction between joy, like the biblical word joy, kind of how deep that runs, and then maybe what we would characterize as happiness, more of a temporary circumstantial uh, feeling of elation, right? Joy runs deeper. Joy is rooted in things that do not change. And so this land that was sitting in darkness was exposed to a light that, that was going to increase their, their, their gladness based on what? Based on the fact that now... They were experiencing, with Christ being there, the very presence of God. They, many of them weren't aware that that's what they were experiencing. Many of them weren't, weren't aware that that was why, uh, part of why this Jesus guy brought such an incredible light to a place that had been so dark. But that is, that is absolutely what was happening, right? They, they were, their gladness was increasing because God was literally among them. We sang of it this morning. Emmanuel, God with us. And so they're glad, and, and that's a great point for us to just stop and maybe do some self-application. How much genuinely in our life, how much joy comes from the promise of God's presence with us? It's something we sing about, it's something we say, it's something most of us, if, if we've been following Jesus for any amount of time, we would, we would ascend to that factually and say, yes, yeah, God is with me, but, but I'm, just, I'm just asking practically, what what? What does that actually translate to in your life in terms of joy and gladness? It's just something to look at. And 
if, if you think maybe, okay, so what should it mean? How much joy should I have? How much gladness should there be in my life because I have this consistent, always fulfilled promise of God's presence with me? What, what kind of gladness and joy should that give me? If there's a mismatch between what maybe you think it could or should be and where it's at, it would be a matter of prayer. Uh, not a matter of getting condemned, but again, it's just a lot of what happens at Christmas time every year is a, a chance to refocus, a chance to revisit truths that maybe we already know, but isn't there always, isn't there always this element to following Jesus where we, we know things, but it, it's not, the communication between the head and the heart is not always running super clear, right? Sometimes there's things I know, but, but functionally it's as if I've forgotten them because they're not practically working out in my life. And so this is, that's why, right? So often, uh, you know, those that, those that write books and oftentimes people that do what I'm doing, trying to, trying to lead and shepherd a, a church, there, there can be this temptation uh, to always try to come up with something new, to, to really like shock and awe, right? And to keep you excited, get the people going, right? I got to come up with something they've never heard before. Ah, man, that's not always what we need. It's rarely what we need. What we often need is the Lord's help to apply in very real ways what it is we already know. Amen. And so... <clears throat> They will be in God's presence, and 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 so and he's and he's giving more examples of <clears throat> what what this gladness will be like, and I'm not sure how these connect with you. One is uh, the, the, it, this gladness will be like people at harvest time, and and so since most of you aren't probably uh, living the yearly cycle of of agricultural lifestyle, um, harvest time is a happy time if the entirety of your existence is based on planting things and then actually coming up and then being able to take the things off of the plants that's going to provide for your family and maybe you can sell a little bit and get the other stuff that you need. Harvest time's a big deal. Harvest time's a happy time. Harvest time is, look, all the work we put in to get to this point, it worked, okay? The locusts didn't get it. The floods didn't destroy it. Thank you, God. Harvest is here. It, it, it's tied very much to life, like just being able to live, right? And so there's, there's a lot of joy surrounding harvest time. And so he's saying this, as a result of seeing this light, it's, it's going to be like people at harvest time. Uh, what else? Like men, uh, like men rejoice when they divide the spoil, okay? Again, most of you have not fought uh, a war in, in, in kind of the ancient way where everyone's out there with spears and swords and bows and arrows, and then we, you know, we stand toe-to-toe, and whoever has people left standing at the end wins, and then you walk around and collect the other team's stuff, right? That's what this is talking about, You're collecting the spoils of war. I mean, for the most part, war is not fought like that at all in our time, so it could be a, an analogy of gladness that you may not connect with, but just try. Use your imagination, okay? So you're in army A and you beat army B. First of all, what does that mean? I'm not dead. <laughs> like, cool, we won, which means I get to keep breathing. Woohoo! So yeah, now, in, in addition to that, that I'm still breathing, now we, we get to walk around and kind of pick up all the best stuff off the battlefield. That, that's like, that's a pretty happy time. Like, contrast it with what all of the time up to the victory would be like, where there's still a question of, 
are we living? Are we making it? Is our team going to be on the upside of this or the downside? Like, right? So that, when you get to the point where you're like, okay, cool, we won, and now we get to pick up the stuff, that you would, I don't know if any of us have maybe felt joy like that. You know, it's be a different kind. It would hit different, wouldn't it? This is good. <laughs> I'm, I'm picking up cool stuff off the ground instead of bleeding out. Yeah, that's, yep, pretty good. All right, that's big gladness. So that's, he uses these as an example, all right? But, so their gladness will be like harvest time. Their gladness will be like soldiers when they're dividing up the spoil and, and collecting the, the spoils of war. It'll be like, he, he says in verse 3, it'll be like that. But then as we move forward, it, he, we see these are comparisons, but it's all so different. It's it's kind of like the joys will be kind of like that, but also different. And this is the key that, that you could miss. This is the key that begins to unlock the real and deep meaning of Christmas. All right, so let's look at verse 4 and 5. We'll see this, this pivot. He's trying to give us an idea of what it'll be like, but here's how it's going gonna, it's gonna to be different than those things. First, it's right off the bat here in verse 4. For you... You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. And so right off the bat, we see this, this difference between what the, the joy of harvest would be like and the joy of the, picking up the spoils of war would be like, because at the end of each of those, it would be very easy at the end of the harvest to take joy in the fact that we worked hard, we planted the seed at the right time, we, we did the right things for the soil, and we, we guarded our crops, and we, you know, we smacked all the locusts off. Like we did, we, We're really happy because we worked hard, and we got a harvest. Could the same not be said for that scenario at the end of the battle? We're walking around picking up the spoils because we fought hard, we were brave, we, we stood in the pocket, and we, we fought the fight, and now we're getting to Enjoy what comes with that. Now we're dividing up the spoils, but we see this pivot where it says, you, talking of God, you're the one that's going to break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. What else? So, so okay, if he's doing it, then what, what else does that mean? It means that every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. There's this incredible pivot here from using these examples to try to help you understand what this joy could be like to shifting our focus to the reality that the reason for our joy is not going to be our own efforts. The reason for our joy, and how do we see that? You'll actually be able to take your battle boots and your war cloaks and burn them. You won't need those, right? And what else does he say? You'll break the yoke, burden the staff, the rod of the oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now, you, you could say, well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I see what you see there. Um, maybe, maybe you're kind of reading that in. Well, I could understand how you could think that if maybe you're not familiar with the battle of Midian. Okay? Pop quiz class. I know you guys really enjoy these. It's fun for me. There's an OT, biblical hero, that fought the Midianites, the Amalekites were involved as well, and it, it was a pretty wild battle the way things went down. Who, who remembers who God used to destroy the Midianites? Pastor Andrew, put your hand down. I know you know. <laughs> Goodness, sir. <laughs> what do we have? Gideon. Thank you, sir. 
We have Gideon. Okay, so if you if you don't know, the, so you could miss the depth of the prophecy of Isaiah here, right? That's why we got to know our Bibles, because he references. It's what does he say? Let's, let me make sure. The rod of their you will break the yoke of their burden. You will do it. You'll take the staff off their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor. You're going to break all that. Like what? As at the battle of Midian. So what do we know about that? So leading up to what he's talking about here, we have God visits Gideon by an angel, the first thing he does with him is said, look, my people are worshiping Asherah and Baal. Here's what I want you to do. Go tear that stuff down and build an altar for me. That's, that's kind of test one. Like, Gideon, are, are, you, are you in or are you out? Are you going to be able to do this small, not really a small thing, he's taking his life in his hands because everyone else is about the Asherah pole and, and Baal. So he goes at night, tears that down, puts up an altar to God, and then... The next thing you see, this all happens in Judges uh, 6 and 7, so if you want to go read, I think you should, go read this for yourself later, I'm going to summarize. So, so it tears that down, and then, and then the, the Midianites and the Amalekites, as they often did, they, they, they assembled together to come and just kind of pillage the land, and that's Israel has been under the thumb of these guys for some time. So God is, is raising up a, a deliverer in Gideon, and so he says, I want you to handle this. And Gideon's like, what, really? And so then the whole fleece things happen. Fleece things ha- happen, right? So God tells him to do the <clears throat> thing with the altar. He does that. But then God says, I'm raising you up to fight the Midianites. Gideon's like, I don't know. Okay, so here's what I'm, I'm going to put a fleece out. Um, you know, if the, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, Lord, I'll know you're calling me. He's like, so he does it. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to reverse it. Look, don't be mad. I'm going to, but can you just do it the other way? Just so I can be really sure, right? <laughs> like, and, so, and that part of Gideon's story is, is definitely not like a, here's what you should do uh, part of the story. Um, but, but God is merciful and understands he's asking, he's asking something pretty big of Gideon here to, to step out in a way that uh, is, is going to require quite a bit of faith and, and trust in God. So, and, and you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to just, um, you know, <clears throat> Get, eat some bad olive oil, maybe have a bad dream and think, think God told you to go up against the Midianites and just do it on your own strength because you're going to die, okay? Uh, and that, that is, you know, you see that clearly as, as, this, as you move into Judges 7 and you see, okay, so Gideon, all right, God does the fleece thing. He's like, all right, cool. Then I'm going I'm right, to call for all the people of Israel that are going to fight, right? So 32,000 soldiers of Israel show up, answer the call, to go fight the Midianites and the Amalekites. You might think, that's pretty, that's pretty good, 32,000. I mean, I can't blow a horn and get 32,000 people to show up. That's for show, right? So, amen. Uh, but it, it, it is good, except the Midianites and the Amalekites all camped in the valley. There's 135,000 of them. Okay, so just, just rough numbers you're kind of looking at. If you know anything about military strategy, that's, we're in serious trouble. We're going to take 32,000 soldiers up against 135,000, you know, <laughs> and maybe that's not hitting you like it should. Maybe you've seen too many action movies, you know what I mean? It's like, well, if all the 32,000 are, you know, like Jason Statham or whatever and really good with the bow staff, like, you know, yeah, maybe, no, listen to me. <laughs> Ancient warfare, anybody that knows anything would look at 32,000, 135,000 and say, if, if like we were going to bet, <laughs> you, would, you would not bet on on the Israelites, okay? Because they're they going to die, all right? That's, that's just, you can't, there's no way you can win it like that, all right? So that's, that's where they find themselves. And, and, and what does God say? Gideon, great job. Great job assembling 
uh, this, this 32,000 people, man, that really shows your leadership. No, God shows up and says, Gideon, there's a problem. <clears throat> this is too many. You got too many people, because here's what will happen. If this, if this band of 32,000 goes up against the Amalekites and wins, they're, they're going to be prou- proud and haughty in their hearts and think that they did it. We're already at staggering odds against Israel. So what does that say about us and our hearts? What does that say about us as humans and how daggone foolish we are? How prone we are to be able to, even with, even with staggering odds that no one would bet on the 32,000, God says, no, this won't work. We've got to whittle this down. So the first thing Gideon does, I think, you know, this is, this is a good idea. He says, all right, he stands up. I, I am certain this, I can't, hopefully I get to talk to Gideon in eternity to confirm this suspicion. I'm certain, I'd bet, I'd bet the whole farm on this. I don't think this went the way he thought it was going to go. The first thing he does is says, okay, everyone who's scared, all right, God wants to reduce the number. Everyone who's scared can go home. How many do you think went? Yo, we got 32,000. 22,000 people go, okay, good, I'm out. I, I had something to do anyway, you know what I mean? <laughs> Can you imagine being getting like, yeah, did not see that coming. Okay, good. Very cool. Uh, and so, you know, then he, I'm, surely, I'm sure he's thinking, okay, well, Lord, I thought, this is bad. I didn't expect that, but you know. I'm sure it'll be okay. And, and, and instead of God saying, yeah, it's okay. With this 10,000, we'll get it done. He says, there's still too many. Mm. What? Still too many? So we can't take 10,000 Israelites against 135,000 of Midianites and Amalekites without us somehow taking credit for this and thinking that we did it in our strength. Is that, is that Lord, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Okay, so the next idea, Gideon... You know, they, they come to the river, everyone's going to get a drink, and Gideon says, okay, uh, here's what we're going to do. Every man that, that goes down and pulls the water up in his hand and drinks it out of his hand like a dog, laps it out of his hand, I'll take those guys to battle. Everyone that gets down on their hands and knees and drinks like that, you know, putting their head down on the water, we'll send them home. 300 dudes scoop the water, and drink it like that. And so that's the number we get down to. And thank God for Gideon's sake, God, now, God's like, okay, yeah, now that's good. Yeah, three, we can do 300 against 135,000. <laughs> so that's where we got to get in order for us to not somehow deflect the glory of God where it doesn't belong. So just, you know, and don't you dare sit where you're sitting and go, yeah, those Israelites, whew, they were terrible about that. <laughs> where, are I, where am I in the story? You're, you're the one with the same sinful propensity, okay? And, and probably went home with the scared group. Okay? So just, you can deal with the Lord about that. That's a whole different thing. Uh, you know, people theorize about what was in Gideon's head about that. There, you know, it really isn't that crucial, but I think it maybe says something. What, isn't that a weird thing? Like, okay, we got to whittle this down from 10,000, so the, the guys that scoop it and drink it like that, we're going to keep them, and anybody that got down on all fours. There's probably something to be said for the fact that the guys that drank like that 
were able to keep their eyes up, keep their head on swivel, be able to be looking out for the people around them, even while they're supposed to be taking a break, getting a drink of water. Whereas the other guys are like, oh, I'm thirsty. You know, not thinking about anything. Maybe. The Bible doesn't say all that, but I, I don't know. That makes sense to me. So anyways, we continue. Uh, so now it's 300. And, and, you know, if you're getting at this point, how you feeling? <laughs> you know what I mean? Super confident? No, e- even with the fleece, man, even with everything God had already, had already done, you know, Gideon still shook, and, and rightly so. If, if any of you at this point are like, oh, well, I wouldn't be, get out of here, okay? I mean, not actually, you don't have to leave, but just like, no, you'd be shook too, for sure. So God in his great mercy says, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. You sneak down to the Midianite camp, and, and, and by the end of that, your heart's going to be strengthened. And so imagine how big a camp of 135,000 people would be. That's a giant space. So Midian, or, uh, Gideon, those rhyme, Gideon creeps down to the edge of the camp, takes one of his servants with him, creeps down to the edge of the camp, just so happens the spot where Gideon you know, is on the rim of this giant camp, one of these soldiers is sharing a dream that he had. And the dream was that a barley loaf came rolling down the hill and knocked, knocked some stuff over in the, in the camp of Midian. And just so happened, I don't know why, this guy, the, this other Midianite soldier had the interpretation of the dream. And, he, and he, so Gideon's overhearing all this, hiding in the bushes, right? And so the other guy says, that barley loaf is none other than Gideon, son of Joash. Right? So, so what does that mean? So Gideon now found out because God said, go sneak up to the edge of the camp. God made sure he ended up right in the exact spot, right at the exact time to hear this guy's dream and hear this interpretation. He now knows the Midianites know about him and they're worried. He wouldn't have known that had he not obeyed God and snuck down. I mean, just for real, how many of you are sneaking down to the edge of a camp of 135,000 soldiers at night just, just to poke around, right? Like, you know, guys that want to kill you. That's, you know, so the whole thing, right? I, you know, there's points definitely where we can say, yeah, Gideon, you could have had more faith there, but I think sometimes we're too, we're too hard on these guys and we don't, we're not realistic about, because we know the whole story, but anyways. So, so he goes back, all right, we're ready to rock and roll, comes up with this plan. Doesn't say God gave him the plan, but whether God used Gideon's natural intelligence or, or you know, strategic um, IQ or, or whether God gave him the plan isn't really the point, but here's how it goes. Gideon splits up those 300 into three groups. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go down to the edge of their camp. We're going to be in three different spots. We're going to have torches and we're going to have these clay jars. Keep the torches in the clay jars and everyone has a horn. When we get down there, do what I do. And so all at once, all of them smash those clay jars. So imagine, now, now put yourself in the, in the place of being a Midianite soldier. You're down here, you're at camp, right? You're eating your franken beans, hanging out around the fire with your buddies. We're getting ready to trash the Israelites like we do every year. We're having a good time. And then all of a sudden, Boom! In three different places, instantly, all at once, coordinated, all these torches light up. Woo! And they all blow their horns at the same time. Right? I don't know if that was exactly the tune, but probably something like that. Um, we don't have that recorded, but... And, so, and, and, and then what happens? So that's, that's what they do. Instantly, there's so much panic and chaos, and it says the Lord contributes to this. They, they just start killing. They're so freaked out, they just start killing each other. The Midianites and the Amalekites, right? 
And, and, and who knows what was going on in their mind. Maybe the Amalekites thought the Midianites were, were in on it or vice versa. Or whatever. Somehow confusion was in their ranks. All those guys did was break those jars, shine a bunch of light at the same time into that dark night, and blow those trumpets. And God handled the rest. Also, important detail, in that time a barley loaf was like a despised food. It was like, it's what you throw to dogs. Nobody would eat. It's something that no one would even think about messing with because it was like, ah. Eh. And that's, that's the very thing. <laughs> God took something that no one, no one in the Midianite camp, they were worried about Gideon, but they didn't know God said, take, take the 32,000 and we're going to take it down to 300. Had, had somebody told them, hey, yeah, Gideon's going to show up, you better be worried. He's got 300 people. They'd be like, ha, 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 ha. One, one squadron of our soldiers would crush that in no time. But how did, but how did God do it? it there's, there's no coincidence here that in the midst of, what have we read? The people who, will, who walk in darkness will see a great light. A light will shine on them. There is absolutely no coincidence that the prophet Isaiah in trying to reference and teach people and to understand, here's the joy that's going to come when this light shines. It's going to be just like what happened at the Battle of Midian. What the soldiers on Gideon's side felt when they smashed those jars and shined that light and God did something impossible that no one would have ever seen coming and God did something in such a way that nobody there could have took the credit. That's exactly what this means. That's exactly why this prophecy is, point, is pointing to the battle of Midian and pointing forward to a kind of gladness and a kind of joy that is completely rid of self-centeredness, that is completely rid of any delusion that I'm the reason for this gladness and joy. But it is God alone who has the power to deliver and the faithfulness to do it. And so we've seen this people in darkness will see a great light. This light will shine on them. There's going to be this gladness, like in the day of the battle of Midian. But how? How, is, how are we going to get there, God? How are you going to do that? How are you going to fulfill this promise? And, and if, I was, if I was guessing, if I didn't know what verse 6 says, and I'm just reading along for the first time, it's like, ooh, okay, there was a battle, and there's going to be great joy. It sounds like there's going to be deliverance. How would, how would God do that? I would expect something like another Gideon. I would expect God to raise up some, some righteous, strong military leader to, to come and to, to lead the people and to vanquish the forces of darkness. Wouldn't you? I would think, how's God going to do this thing again for the people like he did at the Battle of Midian? He's, he's going he's gonna to raise up a... He, there's going to be this powerful leader like nobody saw him coming, but God calls him and, and strengthens him, and, and that's how he's going to do it. Surely, I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how you do stuff like this. That's how you go into a place overcome with darkness and, and bring great light. You've you got to grab a Gideon, you, or you need someone like David. Yeah, he was young, but, but God grabbed David and brought him out to the battle line to defeat Goliath, right? Isn't, isn't that what will happen? God will raise up a champion. That's, that's, that's how light's going to come in the darkness. All the, so here's, here's the flow. All this is going to happen, light in the darkness, great joy, for, verse 6 starts with for, all right, so you're going to get your answer. Here's how God's going to do it. 
before a child will be born to us? Hold on. We need deliverance. We need light in a dark place. We need to defeat the enemy. We need the rod of the oppressor broke off our back. What, are we, what is a baby going to do? <laughs> what? For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. Commentators have pointed out, I, I, I tend to think that this is right. You know, he could have just said a child will be born. He could have just said a son will be given. He could have said either one of those, but he said both. It seems, whether the, the prophet Isaiah was aware of this or not, that God, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was pointing out this kind of the dual nature of Jesus coming in the incarnation, because for him to say a child will be born points very much to the, the human nature of Christ, right? A whole part of how this happened, a whole part of the surprise of this is that you, you don't jump into this deliverance story, this great light being shed in darkness with, with an adult who God has groomed and prepared to bring the victory, right? It starts with a baby. Like that's, it's like, it's like all the, can, can you sense it as you're reading this prophecy? There's this big build of excitement. Woo, good things are coming. Woo, it's going to be like harvest. Woo, it's going to be like dividing the spoils. We're going to break the oppressor's rod. Yeah, how? A baby. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> okay. But for him to say a child will be born points very much to the, the human reality of the incarnation. That Jesus, eternally divine, takes on human flesh, takes on a human nature, never at any point becomes any less God, but in this miraculous way that we can't totally understand, takes on flesh, okay? A child is going to be born, a son is going to be given. A child is born points to the humanity of Christ, a son is given points to his divinity. See, even here in the prophecy of, of Isaiah pointing forward to Jesus coming, we're already seeing some of the, 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 the miraculous, almost un, impossible to understand, the theological term for this is the hypostatic union, that, that, that much error has surrounded this in church history because it's very hard for us to say, yes, Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. Like we don't, that's 200%. We work in 100%. So it's like some people have thought 50 and 50 or or. Maybe he was, he was just one or the other, and the other one's just kind of a, a fake maybe, or maybe he was human for some time and God for another time, but to be able to contain all at once, for it to all be true all at the same time, that Jesus is both God and man is like, and yet that is what the scriptures present to us. Yes, a child is born. Christ took on the fullness of humanity in order to be the sacrifice in our place. And yet a son is given, the eternal son of God is the one who took on that flesh and came to live among us in order that he may die in our place and rise. There's a whole lot more here than maybe a first glance at uh, Isaiah 9, isn't there? And so in this, in this, we also see verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. I've, I've never heard anybody make this connection. This actually, I've never really noticed this, but I, for the first time in, in reading through this this year, um, I believe the Spirit of God made a connection for me that I, I had not yet seen. There's <clears throat> Here we have four different names, right? 
We have wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, and eternal father. Okay? There's, there's four of these. And, and again, why, why these four? <laughs> Under the inspiration of the Spirit, why did the prophet write these four? I mean, mighty God would have been good. Prince of peace would have been good. Wonderful counselor would have been good. Or any of the other names for Jesus we th- see throughout the scriptures. Anybody remember that cool poster from the late 90s? It kind of looked like desert sand and it had like all the names of God. They sold it at Walmart. Did you have one? I, I wanted one. It was in a classroom. Yeah, okay. So you guys know what I'm talking about. Those of you that were born in the 90s, just be quiet. Um, the old people are talking. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's so many, right? Bright Morning Star, the Rose of Sharon, I mean, Light on the Tribe of Judah. There's so many, so many ways, and I think this is God's mercy to it. There's so many different ways that, that the, the majesty and the wonder and the beauty and the power of Christ is, is given to us in these names. And in ancient times, and there was more to a name than maybe some, you know, we, we don't, we kind of oftentimes name our kids by what we think is cool or like we don't think other kids will be named that or what will the nickname be. I mean, that, look, me and Natalie cared about the meaning of our kids' names, but we also cared very, we steered away from some that had cool meanings because we knew the nickname would not be cool. So we were like, nah, we're not doing that. So, but for, and, and for a lot of times for ancient people, man, the, in a, a name, there was a lot in that. It, it had a meaning to it. Uh, even Gideon, for example, after he tore down the, the prophet, uh, the uh, altar of Baal, they called him Jerubael, right? So like there's, oftentimes people were named for something that had significance and, and tried to characterize who they were. And so th- this, this has a lot of weight, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. The connection I had not seen before, the thing I had not thought about before is, <clears throat> and there, you know, there's some variance to this idea, but there, there, there are many who would agree that there's, there's really four big questions that humans have been wondering about ever since we could wonder. There's four big questions that if you're going to, if you're going to <clears throat> say, I have a worldview, I have a way that we should understand reality and what things look like and what is real, there's kind of four big questions you need to be able to answer with some level of coherence, Okay. Uh, some would add a fifth, the fifth being like, who am I? But I think that's even kind of tucked into these other four. So what are these four big questions that if, if you're going to say, hey, I, can, I know what things, I, I know what life's about. I know what the world's about. I know like why we're here wondering any of these things, right? Like I, I have an answer for that. I have a worldview, a lens with which I understand existence, right? So I'm getting off into some philosophical stuff here. I'm going to try to not get too deep into that cotton field today, but the four big questions. It's origin. Another way to say that is, where did I come from? Meaning. Another way to say that is, why am I here? Morality. What should I do? And destiny. Where, if anywhere, am I going? These are the four big questions that if you have a coherent answer to them, you have some way to kind of frame and, and a guide for your life, a, a set of principles by which you understand your existence and you're not just kind of flailing about or, or you know, and, and to be sure, I think it would be an overstatement to say every human is thinking about these things. I think oftentimes people are so distracted with the little tiddlywinks and shiny things of the world that they're not thinking about these big kind of existential questions, but I, I, I do think it's fair to say we should. I think these are questions that matter. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What should we do, if anything? <laughs> and where are we going? 
And I think in each of these names, that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God Isaiah wrote, I think there's, a, there's at least a hint of, a, of an answer in each of these. And so I'm just going to work through those. I'm not going to take a ton of time, but I want to show you why I think that's the case. And so uh, the, the way they're given here, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace, is not in the order of um, origin, meaning, morality, destiny, but the order is not that important. I think each are addressed. And so I'm going to start with origin, right? So to answer the question, where did I come from? I think in Isaiah calling Jesus mighty God, it points us to the reality of where we came from. Because when I... when I think of creation, when I think of all that exists, if, if I'm going to go out on a limb and say, there's some being responsible for this, and I know not everybody's there, but let's just grant me that for a second. Okay, so let's say you're, you've bought into that idea. Okay, the, the most logical explanation based on all the data is there is a being that organized all of this. That being is going to have to be mighty. That's going to have to be a very powerful being. And we can look at that in multiple ways. We can look at the wonders of biological life and how complex even, even the systems within our own body are in order for us to breathe and eat and metabolize and see and think and all of it and feel, right? Like it's, the complexity is incredible. You can go all the way down to to a single cell, and now that we have the technology to look inside of a cell, we see complexity even at the very basic building blocks of life. We understand things now today about DNA and how all that works, the encoding of information at the very basic building blocks of biological life that scientists in, in decades past, they, they didn't understand. So you can understand why they came to some of the conclusions they came to, but now... It's like, man, there's, there's just too much here. You can span out. You can look at our earth, all the systems that work in concert in order to support life. You can look at our solar system, our galaxy, the, the, the shape of our galaxy, the distance of our planet from the sun, uh, the makeup of our atmosphere, all, all of these things. This, you, you, when you just start, I mean, you, could, you go geology, you go biology, you go cosmology, you, just, you start to look at any of these things and, and, and the complexity starts to stack up. You start to realize, man, there's, there's just... There's so much here that, that to, to just chalk it up to a kind of a dice roll after some big explosion, oh man, that gets harder and harder to buy. And that doesn't even take into account, I mean, you need a mighty, you need a mighty somebody to do all that. But then, then if, if you just, to me, trying to take in the expanse of it all, okay, but just the, the sheer scale of what we can even see as far as the universe is concerned. As f- what we can observe right now with all of our scientific advancement, we, we can see that the universe is at least 93 billion light years across. That's an inconceivable amount of space if you understand that a light year is roughly, it's like 5.88, Call it six trillion, a light year, six trillion miles. Did you get that? 93 billion light years and a light year is, 60, or is six trillion miles. And, and if you're going, 
well, that's not that impressive. It's, it's literally just because you can't conceive of the number, right? Like, the only way to express this number is, is to start talking, you know, numbers to the power of other numbers. Because you try to write it out, like, that's the rest of your life. Congratulations. You're writing zeros. That's your existence, okay? It's in, it's, it is. It's, in, it's, in, it's an inconceivable amount of space. And we sang this morning that as Jesus laid in the hay, all of that was balanced in his hands somehow at the same time. There's a mighty God. <laughs> okay. and, and when you, when, I would encourage you, if you're not somebody that has looked into what, what is most reasonable to assert with all of the observable evidence that we have, I'm not saying every, per, you know, every person comes to that discussion with a set of, of preconceived notions, and I understand that that's influential, but I, I, I'm just, what I want you to know is you, you can be a very reasonable person, a very logical person, look at all of the, the observable data and come away with the idea that there is a mighty something that made all this and that made us. And then, then you got to start looking at all of the claims of the mighty somethings out there, which one then explains some of these other things with the most coherence. I would say I've ended up at it's a mighty God. Where I come from is a mighty God decided I should exist. We should exist. For that I'm very thankful because the Bible also teaches that this mighty God knew exactly how much trouble we would be and how much it would cost him to move forward with the plan of creating us. And he did it. That kind of flips one of the, the major arguments people have against the goodness of God, right? Because they look at all the pain in the world and they're like, man, I don't see how that could be a good God. But when you think about the fact that he knew about all that and he knew it was going to cost him the great pain of sending his son to the cross in order to fix it, and he still pulled the lever, <laughs> you know, figuratively, there's no lever to pull. It was much cooler than that. God just started saying stuff. Let there be, and there was. Ex nihilo, baby. He's the only one that does it like that, out of nothing. I got to get off of that because I can get away. We can keep going. So, mighty God. That's where we come from. It's Him. Meaning, the question, why am I here? I see an answer to that in this name for Jesus of Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Meaning, why am I here? Let's do a thought experiment. Imagine this with me. You go to a therapist, okay, or you go to a pastor even. It would be far worse if that was the case in this example, but okay. You go to a therapist, you go to a pastor. You say, okay, I, I'm, I'm drowning in a sense of purposelessness. I, I don't know why I'm here. And that person, that therapist or that pastor says to you, no problem, the solution, I've got it for you. You'll never, you'll never have this problem anymore. Here's what you can do. Just rest in the fact that I am your purpose. The therapist or the pastor says that. Don't, you don't have to worry about it. I'm, just, just think about me. Just know that all of the reason for your existence and why you're here, it, it circles around and it, 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 it's, it's all based on the fact that you know me. Your relationship with me, you can make me the center of your purpose and meaning. How would you respond to that person? Like, this is a cult. Where's the Kool-Aid, right? Like, particularly if it was a pastor. Like, if it's a pastor, if that ever happens, run out of there and tell everyone you can, okay? Call the news, call everybody, because we got a Koresh situation going on, right? So, 
And if it's a therapist, they, they need also help. Okay, you, a human couldn't do that. My, there's no other counselor you can go, there's no counselor you can go to that if that was their answer, for them to boil down all of the existential crises that we have as humans, trying to figure out why I'm here, what is my purpose, no human counselor can say, let me boil it down for you, make it real easy, I'm going to give you something to focus on so that you don't have to scurry around the earth and continue to just be overwhelmed by these waves of, of, of panic because you can't find this centering point upon which you can base the meaning of your life. No human counselor can go, what you need there, the anchor you need is me. But there is a counselor that can. He's a wonderful counselor, and his name is Jesus. He can do it, and it's not wrong. He can do it, and it's right. That's why he's the best counselor you're going to find. Now, I am not disparaging seeking wise counsel from either therapist or pastors in saying this, but what they're going to be able to help you with and lead you through is not going to be able to address this very core issue of a human need to know what your purpose is. Only the Lord can do that. Only the wonderful counselor can do that. Okay? Not, again, not saying there's not help to be found about other things elsewhere. But when it comes to, you know, I will say this, we, we, if, to the degree that truth about the wonderful counselor settles itself, it, it will reduce... In, in other arenas of our life, the, the, maybe the, the need for trying to grab counsel other places, the, 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 more, the more that seats itself, and I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that having this truth seated in us means we'll never need counsel from anyone else. The Bible says we should have a multitude of counselors around us, right? Wise counsel, yes, and amen. But oftentimes we're trying to get from people what only God can give. No one else is going to be a wonderful counselor to you in the way that Jesus is and can, okay? The only way you're going to really be able to grab a hold of why you're here, what is my purpose, is to find that purpose in Christ. That is the one where I would say some people would give a fifth question of like, who am I? Jesus is the only one that can say to you with a straight face, if you want to understand who you are, you have to understand who I am. And all of who you are needs to be tied to and understood through the lens of who I am. Because I made you, and actually what I'm doing with you is conforming you more and more into my image. The whole point of what we were created for was to be made in the image of God, to reflect his goodness and his light. Okay? All right. <clears throat> now, also, Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he's got better answers than uh, you're great just like you are, or you are enough, <laughs> okay? I'm not saying that there's not an element in which one part of the gospel lets us know the language, oh man, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I don't think you are enough is very helpful. Thank you. At least I know one person won't be jumping me out back after the service. I, I, know, I, underst I understand the size of the sacred cow I'm tipping right now. I get it. But I, I, I wasn't going to do this, but it needs to be done. You are enough is not helpful. Because, because it, undoes, it undoes everything the wonderful counselor really can do. What, what we really need to know is that he is enough. That's really, that's really what we need to hear. Because... But here's the thing, Jesus is, part of why he's a wonderful counselor is he's compassionate and honest, 
okay? That's hard to find, okay? He's, he's tough and tender and knows exactly when to be each, okay? Lord, help me be better at that because I'm not always. I get those wires crossed on the wrong thing at the wrong time or just, you know, whatever. Lord, help us. Because that whole idea of you're great just like you are, you are enough, it really sets you up for disappointment. Because there's going to be some point along your journey where the absolute crushing reality of the falsity of that statement is going to hit you head on. Where you're going to realize Gideon wasn't enough. Moses wasn't enough. Okay? David wasn't enough. The only one that's come and fully been enough was Jesus. Because that was always the point. We, and, and here's... Obviously, we can address some things in our life through, through choices, right? And, and we, can, we can work with God in, in the process of us being made more like him, but we can't fix everything ourselves. So to, to tell someone, you're fine just like you are, you, you, basically you're saying to them, you're the answer. Well, you're okay. Well, that's also a lie. Like, who of us is actually all the way okay right now? Like, sinless in thought, word, and deed. We need no more growth or adjustment or conforming into the image of Christ. It ain't me, okay, for sure. And if you think it's you, you're wrong, okay. Jesus is the only counselor. He's the only counselor that can say, I can fix it and I will if you trust me. I can fix it and I will if you trust me, if you listen to me, if you, if you walk with me. Whatever's broken, I can fix it. Imagine me saying that to you. Whatever's broken, I can fix it. All you have to do is trust me. Just put your faith in me. You better kick me in the knee and run and tell the other pastors I've lost my mind and they'll get me out of here. Or any human tries to say that to you. A spouse, anybody. That's not true. Jesus is the only one that can talk like that. The only one that's got the power to back it up. He's got the power, he's got the pedigree, he's got the history. He's shown he can handle it. So that's origin and meaning. Morality. The question, what should I do? I see an answer to that in this name for Jesus of a prince of peace. Because ultimately, if we think about morality, we think about the Ten Commandments, we think about all the ways that we can go wrong, really what we need, what, what moral issues do we have left if we can be at peace with God and at peace with one another? Right? And what do you need in order to have that? peace with God and peace with one another. I'm going to contend, and most of you will not be surprised by this, that at the very base of that, what you find is love. I think this is why Paul, the apostle, could say, oh, no man, anything but to love him. We're in Romans. But if you will love your neighbor as yourself, you will fulfill the whole law. This is why Jesus, when asked by the scribe, teacher, what's the most important commandment? Instead of saying what I would have expected, I think what most people would expect when the scribe stood up and said to Jesus, what's the most important commandment? I would expect him to say, every commandment of God is important. They're all equally important. They're all the commandments. This is the commandments of God, so they're, they're equal. But no, Jesus said, no, there is one that rises to the top. And it sounds like two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it. Love your neighbor and yourself. And then he says something, wow, all the law, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Hmm. The only one, the only one who could come 
and do anything about the, our problem about peace with God and really truly believing how much he loves us so that we could love him in return is Jesus. The only one that could really show us what love looks like, which is going to be the, the basis for being able to be at peace with other people, to love them, to care about their good more than our good, to stop believing that people that are different than me are my enemy, to see Jesus push me to the degree that even if they have made my, themselves my enemy, he's still calling me to love them. That's the way you end up with peace with God and peace with man. It's walking in love. It's understanding the love of God and then trying to live it out. And Jesus is the prince of that kind of shalom. He's the only one that can do it. The only way all that's broken is made right is when love reigns. I know I talk about it a lot. I don't think, I don't think you're going to overthink the depth of those truths. The more you hang out right there, the better off you'll be. A good friend of, my, a good friend of mine asked me the other day, he said, so when you wake up in the morning, what's your guiding principle? What are you thinking about? Because we're talking about some of these things, purpose and, and how we navigate life and all of that. I said, brother, here's what I can handle. I wake up in the morning and I think, what does it look like for me today with everything ahead of me? What does it look like for me to love God and love people? And my plate is full right there, <laughs> okay? Because I've never hit a day where I could, I could lay my head on my pillow and say, I loved God and loved people perfectly today. See, again, a lot of you think you need some new bit of information that, that's going to change everything. Re really what you need is to, is to figure out how to stay motivated and in awe and, and, and to stay convicted about some of the most basic things you, you think you already know. That's really, that's really what the Lord keeps bringing us back to. So Prince of Peace answers that question of morality. What should I do? I should be a peacemaker. Didn't Jesus say that? Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay. The last question is destiny. Where am I going? I see an answer to that in the Bible, uh, in, in the prophet Isaiah here, using these words, eternal father. We, we have a, when he talks about destiny, man, there's lots, there's lots of opinions out here about what that looks like. But Jesus, through his word, through what he spoke on the earth through the inspiration of those that wrote scripture. Let us know that there's an eternity ahead of us. And, and some of you may struggle with this idea that we see Jesus here being referred to as eternal father. And I'll be honest with you, it, tri it tripped me up too. Thinking about that though, help, looking for help from commentators, I realized that this, this particular name, eternal father, it, it highlights the oneness of God and Christ uh, it's not highlighting the distinct personhood within the Trinity, okay? And so, what, what does that mean? There is a sense, again, kind of like we were talking about earlier. You know, we say this a lot, but it's important to remember. <laughs> the Trinity's a wild thing, because we have one God, okay? Right? <laughs> Israel, how many gods you got? One. Lord our God, he is one. And yet, all the way back in the beginning... God's saying, let us make man in our image. Like, who are you talking to, <laughs> right? And then as the Bible unfolds, we see this, this idea of, of the Trinity. And so we have one God with three persons. And so I'm going to give you a summary statement of that, and it's not really going to help, okay? But it, it is, it is it's what I can say about it. Jesus and the Father, they are the same, but not the same. And if you're saying, I don't get it. 
you get it. Just, just leave it, okay? Like that's, that's, as far, that's, what, that's what we have. That's what we can do, okay? It's a mystery. It's, it's a wonder beyond our comprehension. The, the nature of God. Amen. Not surprising. All right? But this, this beautiful promise of, of, of eternity with God, it, the, the, this final piece, this kind of final question I see answered here, these big questions answered in the person of Christ and in these names that Isaiah wrote, it's elaborated on in, in verse 7. Let's just read that one more time. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end of peace. Peace will increase forever. Think about that. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on, then on forevermore, forever and ever and ever. And what's going to happen? This is a great summary statement of really what we've come here to do today. The faithfulness of the people of God is going to accomplish this. Is that what it says? Look at it. Is that what it says? The goodness of the people of God, their ability to obey his commands, that's what's going to accomplish all this. That's what's going to make sure there's going to be an eternity where peace increases forever, where, the, where those who are God's children are able to enjoy his presence unrestricted forever. It's going to be, it's going to be on their shoulders. It's going to be by their hand. No, it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will accomplish this. That's, that's who accomplished the victory at Midian. That's who accomplished the Israelites going across the Red Sea. That's who accomplished Christ dying on a cross and three days later coming up out the tomb. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And, and, and looking at this, I think it, it brings us <clears throat> to this understanding that Advent is not just about celebrating the fulfillment of of the long-anticipated coming of Jesus, what we're looking at, that Jesus came, was born in Bethlehem. Advent isn't just about celebrating that past thing that happened, though that is maybe the central piece of it, but Advent is also about reminding us of the promise that he is coming again. We should be able to relate to our, our ancestors in the faith who were looking forward to a Messiah coming. That sense of anticipation, we should be able to relate to that. Because though Christ came and we have, we are, on, we are in a part of history where we, we can look back and see all of those details, we are also waiting for the fulfillment of a promise. And when you think about it, isn't one of the best parts of Christmas the anticipation? Do you remember being a kid and not being able to sleep the night before? And your parents going, shut up, go to sleep. Santa will not bring anything. <laughs> go to sleep <laughs> right but don't you remember that is it isn't and it you know <laughs> and as a even as you grow up and then you're you're a parent it's 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 the anticipation of, of seeing you know as you grow up and mature hopefully whether you're a parent or not the anticipation switches from being so stoked about getting to open the gifts that were given to you, but you, you start to get more excited about people opening the gifts you got for them, right? You start to grow in this understanding that Jesus was right, that it's better to give than receive. It's more blessed. You start to really live that truth out. And, and I'm just going to ask you to imagine with me what it would be like if every day we could live with even a fraction of that excitement about the return 
of our Savior King. That anticipation that makes Christmas so special. What if, what if we could grab even a fraction of that and live with it every single day? About the, the impending coming of Jesus. What would it change? I'm not going to give you a bunch of examples of what I think. I want you to think about it. And not just now, but hopefully throughout the rest of this Advent season. The great light of the glory of Christ, it first shone upon the region of Galilee, but it has spread to the four corners of the earth. And Christmas is an incredible opportunity every year to stop and to bask in it. What do I mean by that? You know, maybe... Maybe I'm getting soft in my old age. I don't, surely, yes, that's happening. But I'm gonna, I, this is something I've done. I'm, I'm assuming some of you have done it also. Have you ever stepped outside on an early, like an early spring day after, you know, the darkness and the gloom of winter, like we, we've made it through. It's spring and, and you step outside. Have you, have you ever just, have you ever just stepped out into the sunshine of an early spring day and just closed your eyes and let, and just let the sun hit your face and just sat there a minute? Am I the only one that's ever, am I the only weirdo in the room? Raise your hand if you've done that, if you've experienced what I'm talking about. Isn't there, I mean, there's something to that. It's like, I've, I've not felt this in a long time. Like, the sun feels warm again. <laughs> right? This is what, that's what I'm saying to you. Christmas is a chance to stop and let the glorious light of Christ hit your soul the way that early spring sun hits your face. And I want to I plead with you not to miss it. Don't miss it. You get another chance. It comes every year, but this is this year. Don't miss it. Don't miss that chance. We have the opportunity through the whole Advent season but to, to do that, to let that light hit our soul. But I want to encourage you to even, I'm going to get real practical and then I'm done. This, this is, we're within minutes of just a few. But let me just give you a couple things. This is part of why I'm so thankful we observe the Advent season, because we get a jump on stirring our hearts towards this, this kind of basking in the light of the glory of Christ, and the glory of the Incarnation, how mysterious and wonderful it is. But I want to encourage you, all Advent season to do it, but let's, I want to hone it down to, I want to encourage you, I want to plead with you in your Christmas Day celebrations, man, don't miss it this year. What does that mean? What do I mean by that? Pra- very practically, if if you're single and, and, and you won't be with anybody on Christmas morning, there's lots of ways to think about that. But one thing is, you're not going to have to try to wrangle anybody. You've got control of what's going on when your eyes open up Christmas morning, what you're going to think about, what you're going to focus on. And, and I'm, I'm encouraging everybody to, to take a moment and, and, and let that light of the glory of Christ shine upon your soul, man. And to think about and meditate on why Christmas exists and all the wonder of, of what we've been looking through and the prophecies through these four weeks and the promises and all that God has done. If, if you're going to be at someone else's house, you know, look, look for opportunities to, to point out the true beauty of the holiday. I know that can be hard, but I'm just asking you to look for opportunities. I'm just asking you to not get pulled up into the, the kind of, either the, the ho-hum of tradition or, or just kind of trying to survive because it's family and it's hard. I'm, I'm just asking you to be mindful and to not miss what this is all really about. Moms and dads, please take just even a few moments and pray before the wrapping paper starts to fly. And thank God 
for giving us the greatest gift that we've ever received in Jesus. I'm not saying you've got to sit down and do an hour-long Bible study while the kids are staring at the presents under the tree. I get it. They ain't hearing nothing in that hour-long Bible study, okay? I'm not saying you've got to read the Christmas account from every gospel, you know, in half of Isaiah before anybody can open a present. That's not what I'm saying. But please, even if just for a moment, man, just, just read, you could read Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. It won't take long. You can just stop just for a moment to talk about how deep this goes and why we're giving gifts. What is us in remembrance of, right? I just don't want you to miss it because this is a precious opportunity. There's a reason why God structured our existence to have days and months and years and it rotates because we need this. So I'm asking you not to miss it. I'm asking you to be intentional for sure with your kids. Grandparents, man, you guys, you play the grandparent card. If you're a grandparent, you have, you've got the right to tell everyone, hush up, we're going to talk about Jesus for a minute and what Christmas is really about. And everyone has to listen to you because you're the grandparent. Pull the card, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you. Don't, don't let anybody bully you over, man. Even if you've got kids and grandkids that don't give a rip about it, when grandma and grandpa say, hold on a second, I'm pulling out the gray hair card right? Use it. Let's not miss this opportunity. Maybe some of you are going into an environment that's hostile towards Jesus. Pray that God would use you to reflect the light of Christ and his gospel to those around you. Maybe you really won't have an opportunity to say, hey, before we eat this Christmas dinner, or hey, before we open this gift, let's take a minute to think about why we're doing this. I understand maybe some of you will be in a position where that is literally not possible, But even in those situations, you can pray and ask God to use you in some way to reflect this incredible light every human needs to shine upon their soul through you and your presence there. I'm just asking us not to miss it. I'm asking us to to be intentional and, and not let this go by us. Not another year. Let's not waste it. And it's interesting, when 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 we look at this ancient prophecy. We should be amazed at how broadly our culture has opened their hearts to the wonder of Christmas. And I think the reason that is true oftentimes is because many of them don't understand the true message of Christmas. Because the same message we see from Genesis 3 forward, over and over and over again, it's the message of the battle of Midian. What's the message of the battle of Midian? You need salvation, and you can't do it. That's a a difficult premise. The message of of Midian, the message of Christmas is there is darkness and you're in it. The message of Christmas is there is darkness and you don't get to stand there and point at everything else and say, look at all the darkness. The message of Christmas is you have to say, you have to look in a mirror and say, look at the darkness. You have to understand that part of what's broken is you. That's a hard pill to swallow. Most people, that's not their Christmas sweater. Most, so many people are talking about a light of the world, they don't even understand what the light is for. And they don't even understand that they need that light to shine deep into the darkness in them. But we, the people of God, we should remember that. We should live in light of that. And we should take every opportunity to let people know. Because it's not just the darkness part. That's, the light is also in the message. But the darkness, the the light part of the message, it makes no sense without understanding the first part. 
The message of Christmas is things are jacked. We need salvation. And in order to have it, we're going to need a Savior because we can't do it. That is the real message of Christmas. The rest of the message is that that salvation has been given to us in the form of a child that was born, a son that was given, a gift that we received by putting all our hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the Christmas message. May we remember it and may we walk it out in Jesus' name. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. I'm so thankful for Isaiah 9. Um, it's, it's a set of verses uh, that is so often read at Christmas. But Lord, as, as is basically always the case, as, as we really slow down and we carefully and methodically begin to unpack all that you have stored, all the treasure you have in these very words of yours, uh, gosh, it goes so much deeper than, than we could ever imagine that we could cover in a short amount of time that we're together week by week. But I thank you. I thank you for the glimpses. I thank you for showing us what you have shown us. And I thank you uh, that you are a mighty God and a wonderful counselor, that you are the Prince of Peace and an eternal Father. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that in you we find the answer to all of the deep longings, the deep ones, the real ones, the ones underneath all the rest. Thank you that you're the one-stop shop for the answer to existential questions. May we really believe that. May we believe it not only to the degree that we'll take it for ourselves, but we believe it to the degree that because of our love for the people around us, we're, we're willing to share those realities. May it press us into those kind of conversations. May it change our perspective as we first just, Lord, help us for the rest of this Advent season. I, I'm I'm asking that this would be our lifestyle every day, but Lord, for now, I'm just asking, help us. We've got a few weeks left of this time where the whole world, at least to some degree, is thinking about light. They're thinking about these things, whatever their understanding is at some level. And so, Lord, there are open doors we may encounter over the next few weeks that we wouldn't otherwise. Please, Lord, give us the discernment to see those and the courage to walk through them. Thank you that you've promised to provide all we need. We are woefully inadequate to discuss things of this depth, (laughs) and yet uh, you've promised to be with us and give us the words that we need. Thank you. Thank you for what uh, just living in your light preaches and and how it clears the way for us to have these conversations. Um, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for keeping our heart close to yours. Please help us to push away the many multitudes of distractions that we'll try to steal away our focus as we move towards this celebration of a child being born and a son being given. We love you, Master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.